Hello, I'm Jeff Johnston, host of the Living Undeterred podcast. And once again, we have a stellar opportunity to learn wisdom and knowledge from somebody that is, uh, as I say, in the trenches with the mental health advocacy. Um, Michelle Dickinson is from New Jersey. She has a memoir out called Breaking Into My Life. And I've had an opportunity to see a little bit about the, the book you wrote. Um, but before we get to the book and all the causes that you're so passionately involved with, uh, welcome to the show. And again, I admire your strength in what you're talking about when it comes to mental health. You and I were talking before the show. It's such an epidemic right now of epic proportions that we need to start having these conversations. So again, welcome to the show. And let's uh, hear a little bit about uh, about you, Michelle. Thank you so much for having me, Jeff. Uh, I really appreciate it. I I am grateful for every opportunity I have to talk about this. So, and I know you can relate to that. So, um, a little bit about me. So, I am the founder of a company called Trifecta Mental Health, and I am out to really normalize the conversation about mental health in the workplace uh, because we spend so much time working. But I do this work because, as you mentioned, um, my memoir highlights the story of growing up with my mother who had bipolar disorder. So I cared for her for a large portion of my life. Mm -hmm. And that experience shaped me into who I am and taught me compassion for people who struggle. And then um, fast forward and I would be diagnosed with depression myself, not thinking that that was possible because mm -hmm. I was adopted. And... Um, and so that mm. shaped me even further. So I got really connected to the power of storytelling and wanting to be sort of a vessel to cause more open conversations so people don't suffer in silence. Now, how old were you when you um, became a caregiver for your mom? What age was, was this happening to you? So my mom first started to exhibit symptoms when I was very, very little. But I think that playing the role of the child caregiver was mostly in my young adult years and my, my teens mm -hmm. um, when my father just couldn't afford to stay home from work and he needed someone to be there for her and be stable um, to support her. Cause there were moments where she was just too vulnerable to be left alone, but not quite sick enough to be mm -hmm. hospitalized. So it was, it was, in those tender years of your adolescence when you're forming who you are, <laughs> that I was I was really um, the person who really stayed with her and sat with her and felt those emotions that she felt and and you know, even until I was, you know, much older and even out of the house coming did, home and did you have a good her. grasp what was going on? I mean, you know, did did you know what bipolar disorder was? You know, because uh, it seems like you're at that formidable age where you should be focusing on, on other things as an adolescent, but you were kind of yeah. thrust into learning about these things quickly. Um, but did you struggle with yeah. understanding and kind of why this was happening? Um, you know, my dad and I spent a lot of time talking about my mom's diagnosis so that I understood it. I mean, we would even strategize about different medications, like, well, maybe she needs to try this one again because mm. this one isn't working. And um, so I think I always knew, you know, we called it then manic depressive. Okay. She was manic depressive. So, um, you know, I, I knew enough to know that it was a lot like being on a roller coaster. Her moods would be extremely high and then extremely low. Okay. So, um, so I knew that it was, you know, an unpredictable behavior as a result of her illness. Mm-hmm. It's probably difficult not to take it personally. You know, it's like with a parent with Alzheimer's or dementia, you know, it's it's yeah. easy to kind of forget that they have this uh, mm -hmm. disease and to take things personally. But did you have siblings helping you as well? You know, I and taking it personally is a really good question. I yeah. just want to mention, um, I think that it wasn't until I was older when I started to be able to separate my mother from her illness um, and recognize that my mother her, who she was as a human being was a beautiful soul. Mm -hmm. But when she was hurting, she hurt others. And there's that saying that the hurt hurt other people. And so she would inflict a lot of that onto me. And for many, many years, I was angry and resentful. So no, like I didn't understand it. I just knew that she was being really cruel to me and I didn't like it. Um, and so I think with maturity and age, I learned to separate the two and love my mother and hate the disease. Hmm. So were you ever worried that even though you were adopted, 
that this depression you had was manifesting into the same thing? I questioned it because I spent a lot of time sitting with her while she would cry and there's nothing I could do to console her. Like that was really painful to, it's almost like sitting on your hands and you can't do anything. Mm -hmm. So I wondered, you know, if I would have absorbed that, but actually I think it had the opposite effect on me. It, it forced me to look outside and look like I remember one moment sitting in the television room of my house and my mom sitting there crying and there was nothing I could do. But I remember looking out the window and I write about this in the book and seeing up at the trees, the birds that were sitting there and they were chirping and everything. And I, I learned to find the good in the darkness, you know? So in that way it shaped me. And then of course, like I was adopted. So I always said to myself, well, I'm not going to have to deal with this. Thank goodness. I'm, I'm not her biological daughter. But you know what? Like as I got older, I started to deal with seasonal depression. Mm. And then when I was going through my divorce was when I actually was diagnosed with depression. Um, and I was in my 40s. I had never mm-hmm. had a major, you know, uh, mental health challenge in my life until that point. But it just reminded me like nobody is immune to a mental illness regardless of where you come from. It's the nature versus nurture argument yeah. because – it yeah. wasn't nature, your depression. It was the nurturing. You were in the environment where that was prevalent. It's like growing up with someone who abuses, you know, alcohol or drugs or verbally yeah. abusive to their spouse. You know, you see that as a child and, and you, even though you're trying to avoid it, you end up emulating it many times, you know? Yes. Um, so you talk about, and I saw this, it was interesting. I'd like to have you talk about this trifecta of mental health. Normally in trifecta and gambling, you're like, Yes, I hit the trifecta. It's like a good thing. Um, You talk about the trifecta of mental health. Now, can you talk a little bit about what that means and um, how it's changed your life? I see it as a good thing, too, only because if if you're in an organization and you want someone to talk to your people, you want them to have multiple lenses on things, right? So I called the company Trifecta because of my exposure to caring for someone with a mental illness, Mm -hmm. my experience navigating depression, but then also my experience creating um, a mental health employee resource group at my former company. Mm -hmm. So I, I know what it's like because I have those three lenses on mental health. And so that's why I call it that. Mm. It's, it's, I, you know, people that follow my story, uh, know a lot about what happened to me and, you know, this living undeterred kind of mindset, uh, or ideology I kind of like to talk about. Uh, and a lot of times it takes a tragic event or a traumatic event to inspire you, you know, to become a better person. As I, again, people hear me probably get sick of me saying this, but I always talk about the better versus bitter road, you know, that we're given opportunities in life to look at, say, in your case, you know, your mom and maybe your personal depression. And you, you sit there and you can either get bitter, get angry and mad and drink alcohol and, you know, just basically self-destruct or find constructive ways to become better. And so what are some constructive ways you know, you do, I, I know for me, one is meditation. That's one thing I have to do every day for my therapy. But what are some constructive things that you do to take the better road and stay off the, the, the uh, deconstructive bitter road? Uh, it's definitely movement. It's definitely exercise. Hmm. I mean, when I was dealing with my depression, I asked my therapist for medication or something to help ease the pain. And he encouraged me to find healthy vices myself Mm-hmm. and coping mechanisms because um, he wanted me to be empowered. And so in my situation, and my depression was situational. It wasn't like a major depressive disorder or bipolar. So I had a cousin, I still do have a great cousin, Glenn, who challenged me to do the New York, the New Jersey state triathlon. Oh, wow. And so, so that was the greatest gift that he could have given me was we're going to train for this together. You, me and my girlfriend, and we're all going to train and we're all going to do this. And so whenever things get really hard for me, I just lean into exercise because I know as hard as it is to get momentum forward and do it afterward, I always feel better. So it's for me, it's exercise. And that's my number two. You know, I, I have to run it at about an hour and a half every day on my elliptical. 
And mm-hmm. it's up there with using the restroom and eating. You know, I don't miss it. I don't, even if it's mm-hmm. got to be at 930 at night, um, mm-hmm. I don't miss it. And then meditation, those are like the two anchors of my therapy. And I think each person needs to find, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not spirit. I'm not religious. So to me, I don't have that card, but people that are maybe God, maybe the church, maybe the fellowship they can get from the belief of the mm-hmm. afterlife, those things can help them navigate through. The great thing is, is there's, there's no right answers. There are wrong answers. Mm-hmm. lying, drinking, smoking, cheating, stealing, you know, being unethical. Uh, all those all those are wrong ways to deal with what you're going through. The right ways, there's so many of them. There's so many. Yeah. Whatever you feel like helps you the best. And, and it looks like for you and I, we both enjoy exercise. Um, yeah. Let me talk about something that I think is imperative. And it seems like we maybe are moving away from COVID a little bit. Fortunately, mm-hmm. but I think we're foolish to kid ourselves to think that this isn't going to happen again. Um, mm-hmm. I think, again, one of my building blocks in the living undeterred mindset, the first foundation is expectations. And we run through life with very unrealistic, realistic expectations. And I fully expect another, another virus, another, you know, COVID type thing to come up. But you talk about and you write about the impact COVID has had on maybe working from home or, or cultivating resiliency, as you talk about. Mm-hmm. I saw a statistic, Michelle, that um, alcohol usage went up 60% during COVID and yep. online alcohol deliveries went up like 287%. You know, yeah. people that can order alcohol now delivered. So you're depressed. Now you're, you know, you're not working around humans. So it allows you to be more depressed and now you can order alcohol delivered right to your house. Yeah. You know, how, how do we get away from this as these are, how do we get away from these, you know, not healthy ways to deal with right. an unhealthy situation? Right. That is, you know, you raise such a great point because I, I witnessed my own friends during COVID. It was some, it was a random Tuesday afternoon and they were already drinking. And I was like, Mm-hmm. Wow. Like, you know, people were just grabbing onto things. They were grabbing onto some type of relief. And, you know, here, here's the reality. Before this pandemic, it was said that an American would have a mental health challenge in their lifetime. One in five yeah. would have a mental, mental health challenge in their lifetime. But now since this pandemic, it said one in three are dealing with depression or anxiety now. Hmm. One in three Americans. I mean, it's so, it's so real, but yet we aren't talking about it. So, you know, I think that we have such a great opportunity with, and an excuse, not that we need an excuse, but we felt things we never imagined we would feel. Mm -hmm. We were, we were sequestered away from other human beings and as creatures of, you know, born for connection, that was hard. So we have to recognize just how hard this has been and why we've been gravitating to things that don't support us. You know, it's, it's the realization of the prevalence that I think people need to get so that they feel okay talking about it and stop comparing yourself to what others are be what you perceive others to be because you have no idea what they're dealing with. And all you're seeing is what they want you to see. So, I always say stop comparing yourself. We we might be in the same ocean, but we're all in very unique boats. Yeah, there's a practice that I use in mindfulness called meta meditation that maybe will help people. I know it's easy for us and, you know, as a uh, as a parent and I, I didn't ask mm-hmm. but assume you maybe you have kids. I personal question I shouldn't ask. But anyway, um we tell our kids, don't do this. Don't, 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 don't. And it's like, it's like, there's a train wreck. Don't watch it. You know, it it doesn't, it doesn't work. And so to tell people not to do something to me is, is, is almost an illusion or, or is, or is ineffective. So what I've done through meta meditation is sure. I love imposter syndrome. Imposter syndrome has actually been an advocate of mine. It's been a superpower because it makes me get better. I hate to see someone with a better podcast. I, I don't like to see somebody that's, that's, you know, raising more money than me. It's like, and I'm a, I'm a type a competitive attention deficit human. 
So mm-hmm. uh, I, I think imposter syndrome can be good if nurtured and cultivated. So, but again, I think, I think in meta meditation, Michelle, I've learned, mm-hmm. let's say mm-hmm. I'm watching you on LinkedIn and you post mm-hmm. something, Michelle's going to be on Dr. Phil. And I'm like, wow, that's so cool. I wish, I wish I could be on Dr. Phil. And then we play this little self pity game. We invite all of our, you know, invisible friends in our head to this big pity party. And that is unproductive. There's nothing good coming out of that. So here's what I've done now, Michelle. I will consciously say out loud, I'm happy for Michelle. I really, really happy for Michelle. I, I would love to be there. I'm, I'm obviously envious that she has an opportunity to tell her story on a big stage like that, but I'm all for it. I'm going to post, I'm going to share, I'm going to promote her, and I'm going to be an advocate for what she's doing. And I have learned that I take my imposter syndrome and I make it a superpower. And instead of me feeling bad that Michelle just got luckier than me, now I'm like, you know what, damn it, I'm going to support her. And you know what, if I do this 100 times a day, eventually I will have an opportunity to be on the Dr. Phil show or something like that. You know what I'm trying to say? You know, turn the lens, turn the lens. Because it's so easy for kids today to sit there on social media and just torture themselves. You know, why is this kid doing better than me? Why does he look better than me? Why does he have the... Why does she have the best looking boyfriend? You know, why, why is he getting straight A's? Why is he an all American? It's like, okay, slow down. Yes. Breathe. Yeah. Nobody really cares. You know, you, you need, you need to make your own bubble, you know? Anyway, I got off on my little soapbox there, but. Well, you're right. Comparison is the thief of joy. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, and, and, you know, especially in doing, doing good work, we're going to see other people doing good work and together we rise, mm-hmm. you know? So, yeah. So what's your cat's it. name? So I have three dogs. I am, I am not a parent to a human being, but I have three, <laughs> three fur babies. I have two Jack Russells and a Corgi. And I apologize for even asking that question. It's a, that's okay. I shouldn't ask that, but, um, <laughs> I have two dogs and a cat, so uh, or my, actually my cat we just put down, but I'm used to. Um, and it's funny because as a someone who used to drink, I don't use the word alcoholic or sober, but someone who used to drink, I have a dog named Camus, which was my favorite Cabernet, and then my cat was named Opus, which was my second favorite Cabernet. So I always thought that was kind of funny, but That's no, funny. pets pets can be pets can be a great uh, therapeutic absolutely resource. They are. Yeah. And I always say for anyone that says a pet doesn't have a soul, then they don't own a pet. Okay. So I want to ask you a question. Um, so some of the things that you talked about in some of the uh, videos and stuff that I've watched is what I would say like a five step culture that you can create. And I think this yeah. is primarily talking about the workforce. Is that correct? Yeah, exactly. People don't realize that it's it's not as hard as we like to think it is. So what are what are, what would be the five steps I think that you could um, enlighten us and how we can make our work our workplaces uh, better? For sure. I mean, I think you know when we think about uh, workplaces, we want to create environments that are psychologically safe for people. And there's a couple of things that can be done in the workplace specifically where we can actually help people uh, feel safe and feel included. And I think, you know, we're talking a lot about diversity and inclusion, and it also means diversity and inclusion of people with all abilities, including Mm -hmm. those with mental illness. So one of the things I, I always tell my clients is have a leader, have a courageous leader that your people are looking up to, tell one on themselves. Talk about a time where they navigated something because that's really going to humanize whatever it is it, that the person has struggled through is going to set the tone that it's okay, one, to talk about it, and two, to see that person on the other side of it. Mm-hmm. That represents hope. So mm-hmm. I always say go first. And then I say um, policies, having policies that say that you're a truly inclusive, stigma-free environment. And what does that mean? And and, you know, the policies to back accommodations for people who maybe need a certain type of accommodation if they are dealing with something, um, that's really important. Storytelling platforms, that's where my story started. I, mm-hmm. I gave my TED talk in a company environment. I mean, storytelling platforms really help people feel like 
they can connect, they feel related to, they see little shreds of their own story and other people's story, and they feel permission to be who they are mm-hmm. and permission to, to, you know, acknowledge what they've been through. Um, but, you know, like all, all kinds of little things, I would say, uh, can make a difference. An employee resource group for mental health is huge because it allows people to come together whether they're suffering themselves or they have loved ones they're caring for, that's a burden. They go to work and they're worrying about the person at home. So having a community and a mental health ERG community can really create more connection and support for their own people. Those are just a few. Yeah, that's, that's so key. I I see so many caretakers. um, And I often wonder that the, the, you know, I don't know how to say this, but the drag or the pull so heavy to take care of someone else that they're neglecting their own health and wealth and and their own financial well-being. I mean, their mental, their emotional well-being that, you know, they end up then self-destructing, say the person dies and then now they have no one to take care of and now they just fall apart. We see that a lot as well. But, um, so you have a you have a youth program I kind of wanted to segue into and it's but perfect just the way you are is that right? Yeah. And it is. and that uh-huh. and I think I think you are, you know, spot on in the way we move the needle down the road in most of these issues, you know, um, suicidal ideation, alcoholism, drug addiction, you know, depression is the kids. I mean that that's how we're going to move these statistics. I I'm not convinced that me setting up a rehab facility and helping 40 year old women not drink two bottles of, you know, Pinot Grigio every night. I'm not sure that's going to move the needle of depression and and alcoholism. Uh, There's a need for that. And we have 12,000 rehab facilities for that reason. And there's like 35 million people in in treatment, but, or something like some ridiculous number. But Mm -hmm. I think the answer, the key to all this is getting to the kids in the prehabituation stage before they become an addict before they become depressed. And one thing that's really exciting about the tour that we're embarking on is I'm meeting some really innovative minds that are on the forefront of, you know, EKG or EKG technology, brainwave research, trying to pinpoint with adolescents the ones that are most likely to have some of these problems. So your, your um, uh, work that you do, perfect just the way you are, that's currently in schools. Is that correct? So that, that's a program that's available as an after-school enrichment program to schools okay. for that, for the, for the very reason. And, you know, because we had moved away to a hybrid environment, it, mm. it's been really hard to run the program, but now things are starting to change. Because that's probably more hands-on, right? It is. It is. It's a, it's a, this program was created out of the deficits that I had as a child. I wanted kids to realize their greatness. I wanted them to realize their limitless potential and I wanted them to love themselves and recognize that they were perfect just as they are because there were two issues when I created it that were really prominent and they still exist. Um, is, and that's childhood obesity and bullying. I just mm. wanted kids yeah. to be healthier mentally and physically, learning how to nourish their body and nourish their mind. So the whole purpose of that program is really to elevate their sense of self And have them realize that their potential is truly limitless. You know, you're absolutely right when you say we have to reach our kids. You know, the other way that I'm always explaining to people in my workshops, because a lot of adults are asking me, how do I help my children? I'm worried about my children. And I say to them flat out, you have to model what you want them to do. If if you are concerned about their mental health and their well-being and how they're doing, You have to set the tone in your environment, in your home, and even talk about what you're dealing with because that's going to normalize the conversation. They're not going to feel like they have to hide it. They have to ignore it, suppress it. If you create that space, then they're going to start to openly talk about their feelings and emotions, and then you won't have more concern around, oh, are they struggling? Are they suffering? You know, we have great opportunities to model that, but we, that means you have to be comfortable with your own mental health. So I challenge people to take that on because if they can get comfortable with talking about their brain health and how they're doing, 
then they're setting the expectation and the tone for their for their children. Do you worry at all about some parents that are such advocates in these areas? Maybe they've lost a child to suicide or in my case, you know, to a fentanyl poisoning that the vulnerability can become an addiction in itself that can actually uh, cause problems in that person's life. Uh, in other words, lack of quality of well-being, you know, I mean, I, I wonder if that's an issue that people are afraid to touch because who wants to stop a, a passionate mom about setting up a Facebook chat room and spend all day talking about the death of their child when yeah. as an, as a spectator kind of looking at that, I, I often wonder if that's a healthy, I understand, I understand why they're doing yeah. it because I'm doing it too. I'm right yeah. there. I, so I'm not the la I'm not, I'm not casting stones. I, I certainly am living in that world too, especially with my yeah. wife passing away. But I often wonder if, if there is sometimes too much is too much and that people need to disconnect from the death of a loved one or disconnect from a divorce or disconnect from depression and, and just, you know, explore and be in awe of the beauty of life and, and not get so hung up on these things that hold us back. You're absolutely right. I, I agree. Um, what, what I was actually sharing was more around the parent that doesn't even want to acknowledge what they're struggling with, you know, or that they don't want anyone to know that they, um, you know, have to do whatever to take care of themselves. Like it's the shame that has been generational that's been passed down the shame and acknowledging that you aren't a hundred percent mentally. You know, it, it's that that the kids will pick up on and suppress in themselves. Like they're not going to be willing to talk about how they're doing because you create this illusion that you're perfect and you have it yeah, all together. Absolutely. Versus if you versus if they were like a little vulnerable, like mommy's having a really rough day, like there's this going on and I'm really distracted. Like that makes you more human and more relatable and gives me permission to say, you know, I'm having a bad day. So, yeah. I hear the phrase eradicate stigma. Um, what does that mean uh, to you? Oh my goodness. And how what do we do it? <laughs> Two part yeah, question. You know, <laughs> yeah. Eradicate stigma. I mean, the only way we can do that is by talking. I think by talking and being vulnerable and being authentic and owning where we are, we are complex human beings living a, a very interesting life right now. Coming out of a pandemic, it's like, we have to have the courage to go first. So when I when I hear the words eradicate stigma, it's all about the conversation. Mm -hmm. It's all about our narrative around brain health. It's it's being being vulnerable and talking about what you're feeling and what you're going through. You know, it creates permission for another person to be right there with you and go, "I feel the same way," or "I was I felt like that last week." You know, that's how we do it. That's how we do it. What, like this very conversation, Jeff, is how mm -hmm. we do it. One open conversation at a time. I always get frustrated when I see a school shooting or somebody shoots their workplace up or something really traumatic, something really evil. And then the first thing they say is, well, this person had a, had a mental illness. And I'm like, okay, here we go again, perpetuating the stigma. So you're saying if this person, you know, normal people can't go do so. I mean, we all, the way, the way that we look at bringing these things to the forefront is through a story of shooting up people. You know, yeah. it's like, you know, the implication is, is that the people that don't do that then don't have mental health issues. And, and the reality is we all have mental health issues. I just have an off button where I'm not going to go shoot people, but, but I may drink, you know, 20 beers tonight, or I may go to the casino and lose my retirement funds, or I may, have an affair with my wife, you know, I mean, <clears throat> there could be so many, you know, things that I do, but unless it's something really bad like that, it's almost like society gives other people a pass, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. Yeah. I, I get what you're saying. And, and that, that frustrates me too, because a lot of people have no relationship to mental health at all. Right. Um, for various reasons, except for what the media tells you. And that just like, it frustrates me because it's like, no, that's not reality. Like go on to the National Alliance for Mental Illness. Go go do some homework and learn about what some of these illnesses are. I bet you don't even realize that you're surrounded by people who are effectively managing what they're dealing with. But you don't know that because, you know, you don't talk about it. So 
I know far too many people who have, whether it's bipolar or depression, and they're dealing with it, and they're navigating life, and, and you wouldn't know. 1.5 million Americans attempted suicide last year. Attempted suicide, you know. And again, um, we need to figure out ways as a society to get people to empower them to make better choices. Obviously, I had a conversation, a podcast with a mom who had lost a son. And I said, what percentage of people you think, if you could resurrect them, would, re- would have regretted taking their own lives? I mean, hindsight. Mm-hmm. I'd have to think it's like 99%. Yeah. You know, because most people, as we navigate through life, we just replace one chaotic event with another one. And so that yeah. pain and suffering that's affixed to that one moment many years ago loses its luster. It loses its grip on us. Yeah. And I, I talked the other day, I was with my two boys. I, we always say the other day, this was like five years ago. Um, and they were actually, it was four because it was after Seth had died, it was after their brother died. And they were really fixated on the pain of that. You know, maybe this isn't the best example, but I think you'll see where I'm going with this. And I asked him, I said, do you guys remember second grade? You know, do you remember that one day on on a Tuesday at three o'clock, how mad you were? And you know what they said to me? No. And I said, that's my point. That Tuesday at three o'clock when you were mad, it was the biggest thing in the world. It was the biggest thing in your life. But as time went on, it lost its grip. I'm not telling you Seth's death isn't going to lose its grip because first of all, I don't want it to. I want it to grip you and motivate you and inspire you to do great things in your lives. But as you get older, that pain, the weight of the tears will lessen and they'll be replaced with hope and inspiration. Because if it doesn't, if it doesn't, then you're on the bitter road and that's not a road we want to be on. And so I think, you know, stories and you say storytelling, you said that like five times today. I'm like, yeah, that's the answer. That's connectivity, um, connecting ourselves through stories. And that's, that's the beauty of, you know, COVID sucked, but my podcast came out of COVID. Yeah. I wouldn't have met you without COVID. I wouldn't have met all these other great, I wouldn't be doing the tour. I wouldn't have wrote my book or written my book. Um, I wouldn't have done any of these things without COVID. So COVID to me personally, and I don't know anybody that's died from COVID. So I had COVID myself. Um, nothing mm-hmm. happened. So my bubble with my experience with COVID has not been bad. Right. So, right. you know, and I, I know there's people watching this that have probably, that have lost loved ones, lost their jobs, whatever. And I understand that, but, right. but just cause something bad happened to you, you don't have to let it define you negatively. So yeah, I lost a child. That's a mm-hmm. bad thing, mm-hmm. but I'm certainly not going to allow that to define me negatively and nor would Seth nor anybody that dies would want you to sit around feeling sorry for yourself. I mean, that's, that's part of, you know, the stages of, as Kubler-Ross wrote about so many years ago, the the stages of death, you know, you have to go through. I I think it's just the stages of grief, the stages of trauma, right? Right. I, you know, I have, um, I have a mental health podcast called Michelle's Conversations That That Matter. And I invited Kevin Hines from The Ripple Effect onto my show. Mm. And if you know, do you, if you know anything about Kevin, Kevin is one of the the few survivors that jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge and lived. Mm. And he tells his story about how seconds after he jumped, he regretted it. Yeah, he already regretted it. He knew he didn't want to die. So to your point about suicide and it being a temporary pain that people, you know, gravitate to relieve themselves from that's exactly what happened to that guy and then Mm -hmm. you know from the you know grace of god he survived and now he's on a mission to remind people you know suicide is so final there's so many other opportunities to to look for a little bit of light you know that's not it yeah and again you know, sharing these stories can certainly, I, I, it's up. One of the funny things is people look at, you know, what you and I are doing. Maybe this is funny is not the right word, but interesting dynamic is they look at what we're doing and they're like, Oh, it's, it's so, it's so, um, you know, selfless, you know, you're doing this for other people, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, you know what? No, <laughs> I'm doing this to save my life. I, I I'm doing this to benefit Jeff Johnston first. Yeah. Because if I don't and I die, my boys lose a mom, a brother, and their dad 
to things that were preventable. You know, I didn't die in a car wreck so far, so or a plane wreck, you know. And so yeah. it's like, I, I, I have no issue telling people, this is about me because I'm trying to keep me alive. And then everything after that, sure, I'm out trying to save the world. But I think it's disingenuous for me to sit here and say, my life's mission is to help other people, you know, at my expense. I would never say that, but it's like, that's yeah, the implication yeah. if I say that. But the reality is, no, I'm, and you are too, Michelle. I need to look out for me. You need to look out for you and everybody else yeah. comes next. And once yeah. I get myself in a good frame of mind, which I think I am, then I can take on the world. It, it, it's so funny. You, you totally just spoke my truth, right? Like I'm a teacher of resilience. I teach people how to preserve their mental health. I want you to know what to do because I need to know what to do. Every yeah. <laughs> single day. If I'm not taking my own medicine, if I'm not, you know, if I'm not eating my own formula, you know, I'm fake. But the things I teach are the things that I do for myself because I want to preserve my mental health. I don't want to be sick again. Right. So I totally agree with you. It's selfish to it. It's it's selfish to a point. But every time I get to deliver my work. I'm teaching myself, I'm reminding myself why I do the things I do. Yeah. And so the third stage of my living undeterred mindset is evolution. And, you know, I, 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 to me, I shed skin every day. I know literally we do. I mean, scientists will tell you part of you literally dies every day, but I really do. I mean, part of me spiritually, emotionally, you know, when Seth died, boom, I, I shed some skin. You know, I, I, a part of me grew, my wife died, boom. You know, I meet somebody, I have a good friend of mine I just met with before you that he's actually going to be helping volunteer on the tour. Um, his name's Anthony, but his husband just died. They've been married 35 years. And, you know, and so I told him, I said, you know, Anthony, I know Jim died. A part of you went with him, but something was born today too. You know, something, you 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 shed some skin with that and you become a, a better person out of that. Now, I can't tell you how how that's defined. You'll have to figure that out. It's your journey, but it's on the table. The opportunity. Um, I heard someone say the other day, you're always free to tell yourself a new story about your past. Mm -hmm. And if you say that a few times, that's awesome. And as, as a mental health advocate, I love saying that's one of my 10 commandments in my book. My son and I wrote, we did a play on the 10 commandments. And one of them was, you're always free to tell yourself a new story about Pat. You're, you have no obligation to go backwards in time and live there. You're doing that yourself. I love that. You are free to tell You're always yourself. free to tell yourself a new story about your past. About your past. Right. Because the one that you have right now is probably very disempowering. It's the only one you, it's the only one that you have because the past yeah. is over. It doesn't exist, Yeah, you know, and we spend as humans an inordinate amount of time living in the past, you know, Very and true. again, what I've learned, and I'm sure you, you're an advocate of this is being in present, you know, being in the present. So I, I'm right now talking to Michelle Dickinson and I'm, I'm enjoying this opportunity immensely to better myself. I will walk away from this. I'll shed a little skin. I'll make myself stronger. I'll go to my luncheon. I'm going to meet with um, uh, 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 Melissa. She works at a nonprofit here in town. I'm going to do the same thing there. I'm going to walk away from that a better person. And so I'm evolving. I'm a creature of evolution. I'm evolving. And, and I think we need to do that in all aspects, physically, emotionally, spiritually. And if we can do all that, then something happens. It sucks. Death is horrendous you know, or something, maybe you get cancer, um, you know, something happens. I think you're in a better position to handle it. You know, if you, if you, if you can kind of rewire how you look at things during every, during your course of your day. And that's what mental health advocacy should be about. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Cause this get tough, get over it mindset, you know, it works for the right people. Cause there's too many, yeah. I'll call motivational speakers or life coaches out there. They're just, you know, boom, boom, here's my five steps to be. And like, not everybody is that way. Matter of fact, I would say more people are like you and me where they're not, I, you know, not that way that we're more trying to just add arrows to the quiver of our ability to adapt with what life throws at us. And, and I, I just think, I don't know. I, I think that stuff for me goes on deaf ears. Right. I'm with you. I'm with you. 
But I think that the, there's a message for everyone through, like you and I aren't going to reach every single human being. There's mm -hmm. always the variety of different approaches that reach different people. And that's what makes the world a beautiful place, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, I met a gentleman by the name of Steve Grant who lost his only two boys to overdoses 20 years ago, Chris and Kelly. Yeah, I met him when I was writing my book. He was on my he was the first person I read my manuscript because I just love the guy. I've never met him, but he's gonna be our state partner in South Carolina. He's great. He's awesome. I've never met him and he's I've called him when I've been in my darkest moments at midnight, you know. Mm -hmm. And I think to myself, you know, Steve lost his only two sons. I've got two of my three still here. Who yeah. the hell am I to who to, who the hell am I to sit around? throwing this pity party for myself. Who, 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 who am I when he's out there raising millions of dollars? You know, he lost his marriage over it as well. He remarried. He's an advocate for mental health. And I'm like, okay, I can do that. I, I can do that. And so I just, I take from all you people and I take a little bit of each story and, and I just put it in me and it just keeps me going. I think each one of us has the ability to do that. You know, Everybody watching this, everyone that hears you speak, hears me speak, they need to they need to relate this to themselves. You mm -hmm. know, it's great that Michelle did this and wrote a book and did all that. It's great Jeff's did a podcast and all this stuff. But what about me? You know, I'm not Michelle, I'm not Jeff. How, how can I take from their stories? Well, everybody can. I think we all have mm -hmm. we all have that flame inside of us, and some people pour water on it, and other people put, you know, put gasoline on it, you know, fiery yes. up. And, and I think we need to find, you know, and I will always be searching. I'll never stop learning. That's something that, you know, I've learned over the last five years is at the moment, I think I've got it figured out and I let my guard down, which happened five months ago where I had my first thought mm -hmm. of suicidal ideation. My entire life was five months ago. Wow. And I, I put a post on social media. I talked about it. Um, and it was just a, a short, uh, shortcut I took. In my grief, I skipped my workouts. I skipped my my uh, meditation for a week, and it almost cost me my life. And this is like Mister yeah. Living Undeterred. You know, this is people look Amazing. at me as bulletproof. It's like screw that. Amazing. I'm I'm just as fallible. I'm just I've cried two times today, deep. You know, one was to a song that just brought back my son. You know, and just but after I was done, I'm like I just felt like I run a. I just felt like you did running that that triathlon or whatever you ran, I felt good, mm -hmm. you know, crying. Yeah. Yep. Amazing. So what's next for you? What's, what's next on your, it seems like you're just kind of getting started, uh, with all your, your projects and what, what do you have in mind the next few years of how you're going to do your advocacy? You know, for me, it's all about, like I said before, conversations. And if I can be at the source of a conversation that wasn't going to happen, then that's what I'm about. So what I'm doing for, for May, because May is just around the corner, it's an opportunity for us to talk about COVID and mental health awareness, um, getting out in, in front of as many groups as possible to tell my story, to normalize how people are feeling and give people permission to feel what they're dealing with. So one conversation at a time, like literally one conversation at a time. I actually am having my first um, program in a church this Thursday evening mm. because I recognized that faith-based communities are already a safe place. Yeah. So why are we not talking about mental health there? So now I'm like, my eyes are open to even like when I was growing up and I was struggling, that was my youth group was the place where I told people about my mother. So I'm going back to, you know, finding creative ways to just initiate conversations that weren't going to happen. I bet your mom is awful proud of you. Hmm. Um, I hope so. I get to keep her spirit alive with this work. So. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of times we see people with these issues and they have multiple concerns. You know, they have a co-occurring, I think it's called, where maybe they're bipolar, but then they're an alcoholic or they're addicted to, you know, they're smoking or they're, you know, you know, I'm not going to ask you specifically about your mom's situation, but when you do your speeches and you talk to people, do you, do you talk about the co-occurring issues that people have? And, and so you can focus so heavily on one thing, but then you kind of neglect another unattended issue that's growing. And I think to me, that's a, 
But you got somebody that's an alcoholic, that's manic depressive, that's suicidal. That that's a that's a tough thing as a caregiver or a loved a loved one. What do you tell somebody that's going through that? How do you help them? Yeah, like I talk about the vices that we grab onto, right? Like you mentioned it before, and it's it's very easy for us to gravitate to things that we think are going to soothe us. So, you know, my message is always about what what are the healthy vices you can grab onto? What are the what are the things that you could be that you could be gravitating to instead? Um, I'm hmm. I'm you know I'm again I'm trying to get people present to their to their mental health and adopting those healthy things like meditation, like you said, and exercise, because I want them to see that the way that they've been soothing themselves is not a healthy vice and is a slippery slope. So smoking, alcohol, drugs, those are three ways that temporarily quell the pain. But at the end of the day, those are not healthy vices and they're going to compromise our, our health, our longevity, our vitality, all of it, and, and not help us feel better. I have to ask you, um, are you optimistic that the needle can move in, in, in mental yes. health? Okay. Yes, I think, I think so, because we are hearing more and more celebrities and athletes and Olympians openly divulging some of their vulnerability with us around their mental health. And I just, I think that in coming out of COVID, we don't know the magnitude of how this is going to affect our young people, our us, PTSD is very real. Um, and I think that with more volume around this topic, we're going to move the needle. You mentioned PTSD. I, I talk about this in my book um, because this is something that I think we need to certainly present to people as an alternative or an option is what's called post-traumatic growth. And right. Robert, Robert Tedeschi, I, I think it was his name, came up with this concept of post-traumatic growth, which means just as much as you can have PTSD, you can also have post-traumatic growth, which means you have an event happen, okay? Then you have the, bit, the bitter road, which is PTSD, or you have the, the better road, which is post-traumatic growth. And so, but no one ever talks about post-traumatic growth. No one ever talks about that as even being an option, and I think one of the things I'm trying to do in my advocacy is bring to the table fresh, new perspectives, you know, new ways to look at these things. I'm even exploring mm -hmm. psychedelic research. Um, mm -hmm. I, I've never done psychedelic, I've never done drugs in my entire life, but I, that doesn't mean I shouldn't be open to the idea that, that certain psychedelics can be used to help. And there's, there's lots of evidence out there. A lot of it was in yeah. the 70s that the war on, on drugs just basically buried that, that research. And now it's resurfacing with some very yeah. brilliant minds out there and some very rich people putting their money behind these companies that are doing research in this area. So that, that, that's, a, that's another subset of the conversation of mental health is, you know, do we, if what we're doing isn't working and everything's going in the wrong direction, do we just continue what we're doing, build more facilities, throw more, you know, stuff at people, medicines, whatever, or do mm -hmm. we start implementing, looking at, other alternative ideas and plant-based plant-based medicine's been around much longer than pharmaceutical medicine and and, yeah. and the indigenous people have been using these things for many years and yeah. many of their societies are doing fine um that are still around apparently unfortunately um but anyway i just i i, I get off on that tangent i think okay so i've never but done no, drugs even, yeah I but agree. but i don't want to be close-minded because right. i wouldn't be doing this if i saw the numbers getting better Right. If I saw all these rates dropping, but they're not. And so right. it's like, okay, what's going to give? Well, I think our, 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 the way we look at this has to give. We can't expect people just in one generation to all of a sudden get their mental health in order. Um, it'll help if a lot do, but it'll also help if we expose them to other ideas. So I've got, I had one of the leading ayahuasca retreat individuals in the world on my show a few months ago, Jonathan DePotter. Mm -hmm. Uh, he runs Behold Retreats, and he was on my show for an hour, and we just talked about psychedelic research and about ayahuasca and about psilocybin. And I don't, I know nothing about this stuff. I'm not, I'm not yeah. promoting it. I'm promoting right. conversation. You know. Yes, yes, I agree. I totally agree. And you know, Mike Tyson talks about the toad too, so that's yeah. another interesting conversation to talk about. That. I mean, I think we 
we would be a very narrow-minded, closed-minded, you know, society to not be thinking about what are other ways that healing can be provided. Mm-hmm. Now, I, and that's the, the wonder of this journey that you and I are on is that, you know, I think, I think what you're doing, and I think you would agree, is more of an exploration rather than an explanation. Yes. I think it's easy for us to speak in front of people and say, I have answers to all these things. Yeah. I'm just a dad from Iowa that got thrown into this five years ago. I've always, in my previous life, I was a financial advisor, built up an investment firm. I've always been interested in what's called behavioral finance. That's the decisions people make with their money, the relationship people have with their money. That's mm-hmm. been my interest for 32 years. And then all of a sudden these life events happen. Now I'm like, I'm interested in the behavior behind substance abuse, behind addiction versus choice, nature versus nurture. So it's kind of like I have found a home to my passions with psychology and things like that. And it took what happened to me to kind of open that door, but so be it. I'm here, you know, I'll be 56 next month. I'm not going anywhere. I might as well embrace these opportunities to become better. And I want to thank you very much, Michelle, for your advocacy. And the story you share about your mom, um, trying to find the, it's not a heart wrenching story. Um, I, I read, I saw a show they did on your, on your site, an interview, and mm-hmm. you've just taken this as a very uplifting experience for you in your life. And I know during the middle of it, it was very traumatic. Yeah. I mean, of course, but we all have stuff. I always say we all have stuff. It's just what we choose to do with it. And I chose to take the story and say, all right, we need to be talking about this. You know, if I could humanize it, then I can relate, help people feel related to and Mm -hmm. less ashamed, you know? I mean, that's what really what's at stake. Well, the offer on the table, when we come to New Jersey in the RV, I want to meet you. I want to have you a local advocate, share your story, talk about what happened, and we can get people that have parents and siblings and, and relatives that are have bipolar or depression or anxiety, get them to start talking about these things. And so people can see what you've, you're a lived experience, you know, that, that you can talk about these things from, you know, from a qualified lens, I guess, you know, um, but any last words of, uh, or little nuggets to, for people to chew on, uh, that you want to throw out there and then we can wrap up the show. Thank you for that because I want to meet you as well and I'm excited to support what you're doing. I think it's incredible. We can't we can't do enough work and when we come together we're stronger. Uh, my only my only tidbit is not to assume the person next to you is doing okay. Like we have to do a better job of checking in with those around us and mm-hmm. really just making sure that they are okay. I think a lot of times we put on a front that we're okay but we're really struggling. So I think by extending our hearts and extending our, our kindness to people just so that they know that they're, they're being looked after, I think can make a big difference in terms of, uh, the number of people who are suffering all alone. I think that's a perfect way to put a bow tie on this conversation today. Uh, listen, Michelle, thanks a lot. Um, humbled and honored to have met you. And, uh, I look forward to continue this conversation, uh, when we do a go on the tour and, um, follow your story. I'll be promoting everything that you're doing on our, our sites as well. So with that, thank you very much. And as I like to say, every show, keep living undeterred.